reminded that next week, uh, Pastor Jeff and his wife team will be hosting all three services, and they're going to be talking about their experience in Peru. They just got back from the Compassion International. I think they even went to Machu Picchu and uh, did a lot of, that was like the side part of the trip. The trip was really about Compassion. But, um, and you're going to hear all about the experience they had in Peru. But today we're picking back up on a series I've been doing for a few weeks called Just About the Church and how in the Nicene Creed it teaches us that the church is one holy, apostolic, and Catholic or universal. And today I want to be talking about that the church is apostolic and what does that mean? And does it mean for us as Christians also just for the church in general? Um, there are a lot of things lately though that, that come up below my mind that I just can't even wrap my mind around. Um, one is that uh, when you have kids over the ages of like two to six or seven, they know automatically when you're falling asleep. And they'll come and they'll try to open your eyes. Not when you're asleep, but right when you're in that blissful place of about to fall off the cliff into subconsciousness. And they just know, they know. They go, oh, he looks too comfortable. I should come do something about that. Or I was reading about something that blew my mind was there's a, there's a guy who broke the marathon running record. Last year in Berlin, this guy was named, his name is Eliud Kipchoge from Kenya. Can anyone guess how fast he ran 26.2 miles? How fast? Two hours and one minute. Somebody's doing their homework. Two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds. He averaged a four minute, 38 second mile for 26 miles. Some of you are thinking, it took me two hours just to get out of bed. <laughs> Young Christian at the time. 
And she said, I want, I see seeds of faith in you, and I believe in you, and I want to hand this off to you. Um, and then there's a picture of goes back to the other one. If you're ordained in the Methodist Church, they give you a lot of certificates and things like that, once they have one of these, where they say, okay, yeah, you got ordained, and there's a bishop that ordained you, Larry Goodpastor. I mean, he was, he was destined to be a bishop in a name like that, okay? Goodpastor. But he ordained me. And then it traces all the way back to, and you can see the bottom, this is John Wesley. And they show how there's a succession of work that from the beginning of the Methodist movement to today, we are laying hands, right? It's like generational passing on. And you have this, this, you need those handoffs in life. And this church has a great tradition where the Covington and the Willis families, they help get Bibles for third grade just coming up in a few weeks and, 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 and give out Bibles to kids. And then they ask everybody, if you've ever received a Bible, right, stand up. And all these people stand up and got one when they were a little kid. You see this, this beautiful thing of, this, of, of succession and handing off that, that your faith was not in only one moment, but that it's a succession of moments. It's a, a lot of somebody's impact in your life and your story. But no matter who we are, whatever Christian faith we belong to around the world, we all trace it back to the witness of the apostles. It all goes back to their witness. That without their witness, we don't have a church. We don't. We have Jesus, but Jesus believed in these men and empowered them to go and spread the gospel around the world. And once we know more of who we are and where we've come from, we can know who we are today in the present. And we have a better idea of our identity as followers of Christ because of their witness. I heard a story about a man who was going to fly on a, on a, on a flight, and his flight got canceled. And as you do when your flight gets canceled, you go to the counter and you try and get the book on the flight. And there's a long line, everyone's rushing to get to the, the flight attendant. But this one man was very sharply dressed, he was very successful. And he cut in front of the line and said, uh, excuse me, ma'am, you've got to give me a flight. I cannot wait, I've got to get to where I need to go. And she said, excuse me, sir, you're very patient, mate, but I know you're stressed out this airport, but you have to, but we're going to do our best. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. Do you know who I am? And she's calling me up the microphone and says, excuse me, passenger flight 73, this man doesn't know who he is. <laughs> Can anybody please come and assist him right now to help him? See, a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll name drop. We'll name drop for our statement for ourselves, for someone you know. And by aligning yourself with that name, you feel like you have some sense of authority, right? When you align yourself with, you know, this guy was dropping his own name. But when you look and drop names, whatever it is in your life, you can find out a lot about somebody by the names they drop. But see, we don't need a, a good, uh, we, what we really need is a God self-image, not only a good self-image. That is who we are aligning ourselves with in this regard are the apostles. That we're getting our authority from Jesus and the apostles. And it's such a statement of strength to say that the church is apostolic. It's saying that we know where our faith has come from, that we can trace it back to the very beginning. These people who knew Jesus physically were with him and knew him and walked with him and, and were in his inner circle. They were physically there. But once you get to know the author, sometimes the writings make more sense. The writings become more appealing and relevant the better you get to know the author. 
the author of Ernest Hemingway, the famous author. Now, this guy was not a paragon of Christian virtue in any stretch of the imagination. He was married four times. He had multiple mistresses. And if you go to his house in the Florida Keys, I've read that it's now, it's now a museum. But in that museum, they state that one of his wives, before she even knew Hemingway, thought his writing was garbage. She thought he was overblown and not worth your time. And then one day, uh, when she's a young, a, a little later in her life, she's in a cafe and she meets this man and they start to date. It's Ernest Hemingway! <laughs> and his writings became a lot more appealing to her once she met the author. So who were the apostles? Who were these authors of really almost all the New Testament? Who were these men? I'm going to read through their names. Because often enough in church, we don't hear who the apostles were, not all of them. Peter and Paul were both martyred in Rome about 66 AD under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. And I'm, I'm talking about how they died. Because I think you can learn a lot about somebody by how they died. And that how they, we, 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 you know how they lived, you can read the writings. But a lot of times in the, in the, in the scripture narratives, we don't hear about how their, their, their deaths came to be. Paul's beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. He said, I'm not worthy to die the same way as Jesus did. So that's how Peter and Paul. Andrew went to what is now known as Russia. He went as far as Russia. And even Orthodox Christians there still say he was the one to bring the gospel to their land. Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, where he was also eventually crucified. Thomas, he made it as far as India, church history teaches us. Where even today, Marthoma Christians revere him as their founder. If you go to some of those churches today in East India, you'll see shrines to Thomas. And he was eventually uh, murdered in India. Philip made it to Carthage in North Africa, where he, under his preaching, the wife of a Roman governor was converted. And when the husband found out his wife had converted to follow Christ, he had uh, Philip martyred and killed. Matthew, also known as Levi, the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, the, the former tax collector. He made it to Persia, Ethiopia, where he eventually was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew went to India with Thomas, to Armenia, to southern Arabia, martyred. James, son of Alphaeus, uh, the emperor, I mean, excuse me, the Jewish historian Joseph, Josephus reported that he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot, so the story goes, he made it to Persia, preaching and teaching along the way, and was killed for not uh, wanting to sacrifice to their son God. Matthias, he was the apostle that replaced Judas. Tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and was killed by being burned at a stake. Now John, the apostle John, he was the only one who never was murdered. He had died of old age. Uh, church history teaches us some of it could be legend, but some of it sounds pretty awesome. Where they, they tried to kill him multiple times and they failed. They tried to uh, boil him alive in oil and they didn't hurt him. Other church history things teach us that they, uh, people would hang a stone around his neck and throw him in the ocean and the stone would float. So that would make sense that if you read the book of Revelation and John gets exiled to an island in Patmos, that they're basically saying, we can't kill this guy. Let's just stick him on an island. And that's what they did. And that's where you eventually receive what we call the book of Revelation. He sees this revelation from Jesus. Um, 
So when you hear about all these stories of the apostles, and you read the New Testament, and you have all these letters and they're apostolic witness, I think so many modern people today, postmodern people, would hear that and go, well, so what? Why should I care what someone wrote about 2,000 years ago? What bearing does that have on my life today? I'm going to answer that question with another question. That's a very Jesus-y thing to do. If, if we'll listen to internet news, or we won't trust the Bible, we'll hang on the words of Taylor Swift or Kylie Jenner or the New York Times, but we, we discount the Bible. This generation, we dismiss truth so quickly and so easily, and here's why. One of the reasons why. Social media, which I love, which I use all the time, is a great tool. But it's forcing us, it's causing us to be dismissive of something that may disagree with us, that we don't like. You can shut it out. I can unfollow you. I can unfriend you. I can block it. More than ever in our culture, you can create an echo chamber around your life where no dissenting voice gets through. And you only have a tribe around a little shared value. See, for so long, so long in, in the history of the world, there was, a, you could almost call it an umbrella over the most cultures, where, especially American culture, where the umbrella was almost a shared truth or value system. The postmodernism does away with that. Instead of one umbrella, it's lots of little umbrellas. It's, it's opinion and preference overriding you can almost say the reason or truth. So if you can't handle someone's opinion more than ever, we just dismiss it. And so if, you, if it's true that a culture is simply find your own truth, then that's a recipe for disaster. There's no foundation there to stand on. There's no common ground. It's like building your house on sand. Yes, we can have opinions. We can have free will to make choices. And sometimes our opinions aren't necessary. They're not as high sometimes as I think we, they should be. You can have a passionate, emotional opinion, and you can also be passionately and emotionally wrong. What if your opinion is wrong? Really, it's all about authority. From what authority do we derive truth? How do we determine what's right and wrong? When we align ourselves with the apostles, we're saying we're aligning with the witness of these men and women who died came with their blood for what they saw and what they believed in. I was working with a woman, a, a fellow Methodist clergy person in Charlotte many, many years ago, and she was preparing to write a, a sermon about Philippians or Ephesians or something. And she she was sort of lamenting, saying, I don't really agree with Paul. I don't like Paul. And I said, well, I was like, well, why are you writing a sermon about, about what he wrote? And she was essentially saying that Paul's words and apostle his words aren't as important as Jesus' words. That, yeah, Jesus' words, yes. Paul and the apostles, maybe. But I, my, my thought was, what gives you the right to choose? I don't, I don't get to make that decision. It's sort of like people I know who will change the words of the apostles' creed to fit their agenda or their opinion. I don't get that right. I don't see any apostles in the room. I, didn't, I wasn't there. So it's really goes back to is there how do you view scripture? Is it authoritative over your life, or does opinion and preference override what it's saying? Will we listen to the words of the apostles who were handpicked by the Son of God? 
Or will we dismiss them as something that's irrelevant to our everyday lives? One of the best pieces of advice, first day of my theology class in divinity school, the professor gets up, he's got a PhD, he's a smart guy. The first thing he says is all of you are walking in here today with a lens. You're viewing, you're going to view the scripture through a lens based on your experience, your upbringing, all sorts of things. And that's okay that you have all that. But he said, take your lens, pull it out, and get rid of it. Because you need to let the text speak for what it originally said to its original audience. Let it say what it needs to say. But don't put your own opinion and agenda on top of it. Because the last thing we need is a bunch of people's own understanding of the Christian faith. But hear me, our opinion and our experience with God are important. But there's a deposit of faith that's revealed in Christ and taught by the apostles. That's passed on to us like a baton in a race. And it's what Jude, in Jude 1.3 calls, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this is actually a good thing. When the faith is passed on to us, because I don't have to grope around in the darkness for my own understanding of God. It's been, it's been given to you. And it's been given to me. It's been passed on to us. That God has come for you and for me long before I saw it with God. And it's through the witness of the apostles that our understanding of God has come. And they paid the price with their blood. And I think if I'm going to focus on the church being apostolic, I'm going to look at the Apostle John just for a second. Because his life was so interesting. If you read the book of John, he wrote that and he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. You think, well, John, you're being very modest. But he referred to himself in that way. That it, when he had had such a close understanding of the love of Jesus. If you read 1 John, 2 John, he knew in intimate ways the love of God. That just when you, even when you read it today, like, I want to be, I want to get closer to John. Because if you look at Jesus' life, there are concentric circles around him. There's crowds, lots of crowds inner circle of the twelve, there's an inner, inner circle of, of Peter and James and John, and John refers to himself as a disciple that Jesus loved. It's just, he's saying this is how close Jesus and I are and were. And this is exhibited in John 19.26. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's preparing to die. And he looks at Mary, and he says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. I never understood what that meant for a long time, and I realized what he's saying is, John, take care of my mom. He's saying, Woman, here is your son. John, take care of mom. These are the type of men that we are getting the faith from. The Son of God would look at John and say, I trust my mom in you. Now, John, as we said, he didn't die of being martyred. He died of old age. And Jesus told him that one day he was going to be blind, and an old man and might be led around to where he would need to go. And of course, Jesus was right. And church history teaches us that when John would attend church meetings like this one, that the younger Christians would literally carry him into the services. Blind old man, the man that Jesus loved. And then they would carry him in and brought up reverence. 
And it said that John would say the same thing over and over again. They could barely hear him, but he would say, little children, you must love each other. He repeated over and over again, you must love each other. These are the men, and many places the women, of which the faith that we are being passed on to. But they are, these are the type of people that are passing this baton to us. And if you read the book of Acts, what sort of message did the apostles preach that got them killed? It was very simple. They preached Christ crucified, and they preached Christ risen from the dead, and they preached it everywhere they could, as long as they could. And they preached it again and again, that Jesus hung on the cross and died for your sin. One of the most powerful verses in the Bible is this, that he who had no sin became sin for you, so that you might become the righteousness of God. That he who had no sin, out of love for you and for all people, became sin so that we might become righteous. What good news that is, as we go before the table of Christ this morning, of the new covenant, of his body and his blood poured out for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. So let us pray together this morning. God, heaven, we thank you that in this place you are here. We thank you that by your sacrifice we can know eternal life on this day. That's something that happened so long ago, it does not bear in us today because sin has never changed. We are still a people in need of atonement. God, that we can't forgive ourselves. God, only you can forgive sin. And it is through this remembrance of your active presence here with us that we can know forgiveness, that we can know our sin being atoned for, that when we come forward to receive the body and the blood, it is a confession of faith, it is a re re receiving of your grace. God, we all need forgiveness day after day. We thank you, God, for this time and this place. We pray that you fill us and fill the space and bring joy to hearts that need it. Thank you for the deposit of faith that's given to us through the apostles and the witness that still stands to this very day. And help us to be witnesses to the world in the same manner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Jeff comes forward to prepare for communion, I'm going to also share that during communion, Melissa and I will be available for prayer in the back of the room. We need prayer with someone we love to lay hands on and prayer um, as well. I hope this is a prayer of your heart this morning. Lord. 